two-thirds of people in business today are disengaged with their jobs. Uh, I've been to large companies where people say, what exactly value do we add if our entire business is basically run by numbers and AI and spreadsheets are coming? So as a result, my thought was to make this very clear that success really is about integrating the story and the spreadsheet, which is the soul of the business. And we have to remember that in this age, the first, second, and now third connected age, it's us who are analog carbon feeling based people who are living and we are not just living a silicon digital data driven world. That was Rishad Tabakawala, author and senior advisor to Publicis Group, one of the biggest communication firms in the world. As the former chief strategist and chief growth officer for Publicis, Rishad has spent a career tracking and working with the key technological shifts and how they impact human communication. In this fascinating new book, Richard argues that we have misplaced our overbearing focus on data and digitization, and that human skill and ingenuity are what will bring success for companies in 2020 and beyond. But before we start, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. In this podcast, we bring together thought leaders from around the world who focus on ethical technology and responsible innovation. We focus on the advancement of responsible and sustainable innovation and the best place to take a deeper dive on these fascinating topics is by going to our website or meeting us in person at one of our 2020 events where we bring together the global community to discuss the advancements in responsible and sustainable innovation. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Rishad Tabakawala. Hi, Rishad. Thank you so much for joining us here on Digital Mindfulness. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you very much and uh, thank you for having me. So Rishad, I wonder if you'd introduce us to your work and in particular, how you found yourself to focus on this issue of responsible innovation. Absolutely. So I grew up in India, in the city of Bombay, got a degree in mathematics from the University of Bombay, came to the United States to get an MBA from the University of Chicago. Uh, 37 years ago, one company gave me a job because I did not have a green card, so I had a student visa. And that was a company called Leo Burnett, which is an advertising agency in Chicago. And I thought I'd stay there for a couple of years, get my green card and go on to do another job. 37 years later, I am still inside the Leo Burnett building in Chicago. (laughs) So that is either a testament to loyalty or more likely a testament to unemployability. But I have basically been there. But in that course, the last time my business card said Leo Burnett is about 25 years ago. Uh, So I began my career in Leo Burnett is an advertising agency. So I worked on advertising projects for companies like Procter & Gamble and several other projects, Um, rose to a rather senior level, and then moved into doing something different, which was moving into what was known as the Leo Burnett Direct Marketing Department in about 1992-1993, when direct marketing was starting to take off. And while doing that, I discovered that most of the economics of direct marketing didn't work for certain types of brands because we had to cut too many trees, find uh, people to mail to, postage costs, et cetera. And I came upon things like Prodigy and CompuServe, but most importantly, America Online, 
and built a group called the Leo Burnett Interactive Marketing Group. This was 1994-1995, so almost 25 years ago. Um, and then in 1995, I convinced Leo Burnett that instead of calling it the Leo Burnett Interactive Marketing Group, we should basically make it a freestanding company, leave the building, and we launched an interactive agency called Giant Step. Helped grow that from about three to 100 people profitably, and then came back and helped Leo Burnett media department spin off into its own company called Starcom. In 2002, we were bought by the publicist group. And then over the last 15 years, I've sort of expanded my remit and Starcom merged with a company called MediaVest. We got bought by Publicis. We created a thing called Publicis Group Media. We built the case along with my management to buy companies like Digitas, Razorfish, and others in the digital world. Um, more recently, we bought Sapient. And about five years ago, I took on a global uh, role across the group, so all 80,000 people. And I've been the chief strategist of the group, as well as more recently, the chief growth officer of the group. And Publicis is 80,000 people, about $11 billion of revenue headquartered in Paris with most of its business in the United States and its second largest number of employees in India. Thank you very much for that. And through the span of your career, you've really seen the entire growth of you know what we would consider today to be the modern digital era and in particular how that's impacted on human behavior, society and communications. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, the, the way I like to define it is my company's digital revenue in 2004 was 4% and today it's 59%. So I've seen that particular adventure and I've seen the coming and going. So I introduced America Online to our clients when they had 300,000 members. So I've seen that, I've seen you know, the rise and fall of Yahoo, uh, the rise and rise of Google, the rise and the questionable you know, issues facing Facebook, et cetera. So, uh, and I've also had the opportunity to travel very much. So I've been to 26 cities in China, so I've seen what's happening in China. And obviously spend a lot of time across Europe because of our company headquarters as well as India because that's where I've grown up. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And we are going to talk a lot more about that intersection and the impact that digital has had on human communication. But I want to just talk a little bit about your book that you've just published, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Now, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this book, what it's about, but also why it's so important. Absolutely. So first, I will sort of frame uh, one way of looking at the world. Because over the past 25 years, I've divided the age we've been living into into three connected ages. So the first connected age I began, began in 1989 with uh, Tim Berners-Lee and the World Wide Web. So the first connected age was from 1989 to 2007. And the two dominant things that we were connected to were we were connected to information through search and we were connected to transactions through Amazon uh, or rather through e-commerce in the first age. So through search and e-commerce and uh, so connected to communication, connected to transactions. And the two companies in the Western world that dominated were Google and Amazon, which are the two of the most five valuable companies in the world. 
In 2007, we began the second connected age where we were connected all the time because of smartphones and we were connected to everybody because of social media and Apple and Facebook in the Western world were the two dominant companies in that era. Around 2017, we've entered the third connected era. And each of these build on each other. So social is important, mobile is important, commerce is important, and search is important. Um, but now we've entered the third era where there are four forms of communication, connection. Uh, data connecting to data, which is the rise of AI. Things connecting to things, which is the internet of things. New ways of connecting. So for instance, voice as an interface. And finally, much faster ways of connecting, which will be the rise of 5G. So as we enter the third connected era, I began to realize that businesses were tilting more and more towards being data intensive and numerical. So I sort of define a business having two components, a spreadsheet component, which is the math going through the business, the data going through the business, the deliverables of the business, the numerical. And then we, what I call the story of the business. And the story of the business is its people, the emotions that run through the system, its purpose, its values, its culture. And I was beginning to realize over the last five years that more and more businesses were tilting towards the left. More and more human beings were tilting towards the left, which is the spreadsheet. And we had fallen out of balance. And two things were happening which were very concerning. The first is businesses were making very silly decisions. Decisions like Wells Fargo started opening up fake accounts because everything was, let's make the numbers, let's make the numbers. Um, at the same stage, I was seeing the businesses that were balancing better. So consider a Costco versus a Walmart or a Southwest versus a United, where people were not just focusing on the numericals, but were also focusing on the people and culture and humans and other things were actually doing better. So this whole idea of tilting towards the left wasn't necessarily good for companies. Second is, and, and probably the most important it wasn't very good for people. So people, two thirds of people in business today are disengaged with their jobs. Uh, I've been to large companies where people say, what exactly value do we add if our entire business is basically run by numbers and AI and spreadsheets are coming? So as a result, my thought was to make this very clear that success really is about integrating the story and the spreadsheet which is the soul of the business. And we have to remember that in this age, the first, second, and now third connected age, it's us who are analog carbon feeling-based people who are living, and we are not just living a silicon digital data-driven world. Richard, one of the things that you speak about um, and you place a great deal of importance on is data and how we shouldn't deify or place too much um, um, attention on data, but I'm interested in this because you do come from an advertising background where that absolutely is data-driven. We, in the business sector, but also in our daily lives, we place such a great importance on digital data, um, but you say that we shouldn't place so much um, attention on this. And I'm wondering if you can just expand on that as to why that should be the case. So the first, you know, a simple thought is that in 2020, sometime in 2020, 2021, um, businesses will spend about $22 billion in the United States on data centers. 
And that number was basically in the single, very low single digits about five, six years ago. Um, every single form of new forms of communication expound massive amounts of data as we potentially know. But most importantly, the thing with data is the dat data has become, uh, unlike English or Mandarin, it has become the world global language. It's a language that crosses around the world. Everybody understands the numerics. It is basically something that drives most of the modern operating systems. But as importantly, it doesn't require you to think very hard. It, it isn't messy like human emotions. And it potentially gives you a very simple answer. Here's a zero and one. The only problem is two forms. One is, if it's only going to be that, that that is what's going to happen, then in effect, you begin to have decisions that are now made. Like, let's look at a Facebook. They thought that AI could figure out how to find bad actors. Now they need to have hire 35,000 people after the fact, recognizing that human beings actually are sometimes smarter than zeros and ones. But most importantly, while a machine can beat the greatest grand chess master, the chess master plus the machine can beat the machine. And as a result, my, my book is actually about how we work alongside data and not in subservient to it or instead of it. I think this is absolutely critical because it sounds to me very much like this is the way not only that um, companies and businesses are going to innovate responsibly um, both now and in the future, but also this is just going to be how companies work in terms of um, breaking down all of these silos and bringing together all of these disparate um, um, pools of data and allying that with the skills, the immense skills um, of their workforce. Also what tends to happen is because of the way we interact and interface with data. So the first chapter of my book is called Too Much Math, Too Little Meaning, where I sort of explain that unless you bring in soul and purpose and human insight, you don't actually get much meaning from data. And that data is necessary, but not sufficient to differentiate. But as importantly, because the way we interact with data, which is increasingly through screens, we also are increasingly having a new challenge in the modern workplace, which is uh, how do you manage cultures in an age of screens? So my second chapter is called uh, Managing the Darker Side of Brighter Screens. For instance, many people have gone to open, you know, sort of WeWork, hot seat arrangements at work, uh, work from wherever you want, et cetera. And a lot of that provides great benefits and flexibility, cost savings, access to talent you normally would not, access to talent you normally would not have. But one of the most important things that, that, that I think is missing is that at the very same stage when someone goes to these open seating the number of emails in an organization goes up between two times and three times. The number of actual conversations goes down because people have headphones on and so nobody talks to each other or you never see your boss or your colleagues because they're everywhere all over the world and companies' cultures begin to unravel. So there's some very interesting things which in a data-based age is not just how you compute data but what it does to basic culture. So going on from that then, Rashad. Can you tell us what 
or how you would envisage an organization in the 2020s that does um, restore the soul to business that isn't so reliant on data but as you you know as you say in the book has more soul in it so the first thing is to focus that the only way a company actually succeeds is either by upgrading the quality of its people or upgrading the mindset of the talent they currently have that outside of a few, very, very few companies, like a Google, like a maybe a Baidu, like a Facebook, very few companies can ever differentiate on data itself uh, or on technology itself. Because very few companies today differentiate on how they use electricity, right? You can't operate without electricity, but you never win just because you're using electricity. So therefore, the first emphasis I have is on cultures of an organization and to recognize that people inside companies work for more than fame, power, and wealth. And increasingly what we found doing a lot of research is they basically work for three other things. In addition to that, obviously they need to have some of that, but they basically work for personal growth, which is how they can grow. The second is how they can become more of what they want to be, which is sort of self-actualization. And the third is they are very interested in connections, connecting with colleagues and other people. So those three things, which is, is, is the company's purpose and my self-actualization aligned? How am I growing? And how am I connecting to and building relationships? Those three things become extremely important. And so uh, then I provide seven pointers on how companies can maximize that while recognizing we're living in a competitive, fast-moving, data-driven world. And then I provide sort of seven different aspects, which include things like how do you create an environment where people can speak truth to, the, truth to power, which I say calling out the turd on the table. How to basically have more meetings rather than fewer meetings, but have those meetings about personal interactions with the surrounding yourself looking at screens of data. Another one is all of us as human beings have to recognize, you know, if you're using, let's say, the Apple iOS system, we're now on its 13th operating system. Well, the Mac is on its 10th operating system. Most of us humans have barely got to the second operating system. So I have an entire chapter on how to upgrade the mental operating systems. How do we grow? So I have seven specific things from meetings to speaking truth to power to bringing art into business that companies can potentially do regardless of size and individuals can participate in in their own world to make sure that they thrive in this third connected age so one of the main points that you make in the book to restore the soul to business is that people should be having less meetings and i think for a lot of people listening that's probably antithetical to the way that they're working just now because if you look at any of the latest literature, we're being told that more collaboration, more meetings are being advised. So why do you think it's important to have less of these meetings? So as someone obviously over 37 years around the world has sat in lots of meetings, I've been observing these things. And what I've come to realize is the following. It's what goes on in the meeting is what we resent, not the meeting itself. So what tends to happen is the first thing we have is we tend to basically have meetings. Often there are meetings where there was no reason to have a meeting. We all gather around looking at numbers and someone reads the numbers to us. 
So why did, why was that necessary? We could have read it anyway. So that's number one. Number two, in many meetings, people basically think that all meetings have to be large meetings versus smaller meetings. And the third one is we, we have this basic belief that we should only go to meetings where we can extract value when I believe we should only go to meetings where we can add value. So what tends to basically happen is we, we go to meetings where the content's not right. We go to meetings with the wrong mindset of extracting versus giving. And we go to meetings thinking meetings have multiple people, but can't just necessarily be meetings with one or two people at, or just one, two people at the same time. So over the years, what I began to realize is I created a, a model which basically said that whenever someone puts a meeting on a calendar, it's not a question of uh, going to that meeting. What meeting are they going to remove from the calendar? So the, the, the entire idea is, is first of all, let's make sure that we just don't necessarily have more meetings for more meetings sake. But when we have meetings, there are four things I've learned from meetings, which most people are not taking. So the first one is go to meetings with generosity, which is giving people, you know, giving people either advice, uh, your year or whatever. The second thing is go with empathy, which is, is to have meetings where you, we end meetings with energy. So one of the reasons why people are so distraught is because their basic stuff is at the end of the meeting, people basically have to be informed and then go do what they want to do. My basic belief is at the end of a meeting, the following three things should happen. One is people should have clarity on next steps. Second is they should basically feel that they are capable of doing the next steps. And third is they should be energized to do the next steps. And most people basically end meetings with, okay, here's what we got to do, but not how we can do it and whether you're capable of doing it and you want to do it. But I've always basically therefore now said, how about doing this? When you have meetings, go to a meeting without PowerPoint, without slideshows, and just have conversations. And I, you know, I point to the fact that like when Jeff Bezos and Amazon runs meetings, everybody comes into a room, they read something which is written out like a story for 15 to 20 minutes, and then they have basically discussions. So the problem basically is just to call more meetings. And then I describe different types of meetings that we should basically emphasize. And by the time you do those meetings, you end up actually having more meetings because meetings is the way that you actually learn much more, especially if they're not meetings looking at numbers. So if you have a meeting with a human being, you begin to understand certain things like tone of voice. You begin to basically see things like how they look and what, where they're looking. They basically begin to build a bond and therefore at the, at the, after that bond, you can have meetings from far away, but you've had actually a physical meeting. So that's the, the reason for more good meetings. A lot of people who read that said, shit, this is what we need to do. And then they began to realize that I do this. So in fact, my assistant's job is if anybody ever wants to have a meeting with me, it's her job for me to make sure that we have the meeting. Uh, which based, and I've learned more from those meetings than basically saying, why the hell should I go to have a meeting with someone I don't know about? Would this mean then, Rashad, that you're not a fan of remote working? Here's what I am. I'm basically a form of very much of balance, which is I believe that remote working brings significant advantages in costs, costs flexibility, 
and bringing people into the workspace, whether they're parents or whether they're people looking after their aged parents, etc. So it brings in more diversity in the workplace, more flexibility and cost structure, and it is about 47% of people in the next four or five years will be remote working, so it's a fait accompli. So I believe that that actually brings advantages. However, the disadvantage that it has is it significantly impacts communication, it significantly impacts relationships, and it significantly impacts culture, and all those three to the negative. Therefore, what I suggest is as many companies as they possibly can should try to have times where people get together, not necessarily all together all at the same time, but underwrite and try to get people to get together. When I ran companies where people were distributed across five or six or seven markets, what I would basically do is ask everybody in those markets to all come together in a room. And then all those seven rooms would be connected over the phone. So we had a, a sort of a sense of basically being all together. So we were all together as a company across seven markets. That felt great. But inside each market, we basically had all of our people together. And the other part of it was half the meeting was about business and half the meeting was about fun and culture and people introducing themselves and justifying why they were still in the company, et cetera. And this idea of combining the two is what I believe in. So I'm not against, uh, obviously, you know, sort of remote working. I'm basically against remote cultures. So we've been talking a lot, of course, about um, how companies can work to restore the soul of business. But um, I want to talk about value. And in particular, if we were to walk back into um, our places of work now and to start to talk about this, about bringing back the soul of business, the first response that we would get is um, data has value and profits actually have um, tangible value. So I'm wondering in the 2020s and beyond and in line with the thesis from the book, what, do you, what would you say is the, um, um, I guess, the most important um, marker of value in companies once they start to take on this philosophy? So I would say there are five different factors. Some of them obviously are measured with numbers, but they're not necessarily financial numbers, but they're obviously measurable. So the first one, which builds on the talent, is your ability to attract and retain world-class talent. So what's your retention rate and what's your attraction rate when people basically, you give someone a job offer and they come in or not. So for instance, uh, give you an idea of how when a company's culture changes and its focus changes too much on, on the data, it can actually impact. Uh, two years ago, about 90% of the people who were offered a job from Facebook accepted. Today, that number is 50%. Anybody on the board of directors recognizes it means one out of two very talented people are turning you down. That will have to impact the long-term impact of that company, especially when you need engineers for all the new worlds that we're going to. So one number really is about the health of your talent, everything from retention to attraction. The second is the value of your brand. Brands actually matter. In fact, brands matter more today than ever before. They're built in new and different ways, but brands matter because in an age of fragmentation, brands are the ultimate navigation devices. And so what is your brand equity? 
how do people think about your brand? Would they like to buy your brand? Would they, do they think it's a you know, moral brand, et cetera? The third is the impact that you are basically having on the environment, on society, and on governance. So for instance, uh, are you running an Obama-like government or are you running a Trump-like government, right? And in the long run, an Obama-type government where you don't have people going to jail is probably better than a Trump-like government. Just a thought, right? Uh, the impact on society around you. So one of the things that you're seeing today, like today in the morning when I got up, you know, people are sort of criticizing, today people are criticizing Amazon for two separate things. They were criticizing them for, some, for potentially hiding some debts in their warehouses where people are supposedly overworked. And they're now criticized because they put together some certain algorithms um, which sort of do some sort of racial profiling on their ring, you know, the, the ring company that they basically is part of their stuff. And these are things that people are beginning to realize that you just can't do whatever you feel like and get away with it. There, there are impacts on society. So when Jeff Bezos goes around, who is basically the richest man in the world with a trillion dollar value company, getting, com getting people all over the world or the United States begging him and giving him money to come into their market. That is pretty ridiculous because that money comes from where? It comes from education and health that those, 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 those societies or those markets were putting in. And so then it eventually ends up with someone like you know, Scott Galloway, who's the NYU professor, who basically says, you know, Jeff Bezos is the biggest welfare queen in the world. He basically is raping the United States government and taking money from people's, right? These are things one has to recognize. This is the whole thing. But one of the other things also is, do you have diverse people? And there are two types of diverse people. Do you have diverse people in obviously backgrounds and ethnic and color and, and, and gender, but also do you create an environment where people can speak up? Diverse faces is not the same as diverse voices. And that's one of the other reasons why you're having this amazing backlash on Silicon Valley, because the average person in Silicon Valley is a 30-year-old male, right? These are the things that one has to recognize. And I think now people are beginning to recognize that the health of a company are all of these things and not just whether they deliver for the short term. I think that's a really powerful statement that, diversity of faces doesn't equal diversity of voices and that's really something that um, people should take away so um, my last question for you then Richard is for people listening um, what is the first thing that they could do to um, once they've read your book to implement some of the teachings that you have in there within their own teams and organizations so I would say that there are two things that I would ask most people to do uh, the first thing is to build a case for the exact opposite of what they believe. So I've always basically said, if you believe something, I really know you believe something if you can build a very strong case for the exact opposite. Otherwise, you've not actually listened to anybody and you've not actually figured out what the other point of view is. And part of any data, the way to get a soul of anything is to integrate two parts of you. And all of us are basically more different in two different moods than two different people often are. And so build a case for the exact opposite. And then the other one is this, which is recognize that all of us have in us the ability to be great bosses as well as bad bosses. So I have an entire chapter called Leading with Soul on how to be a good boss and how not to be a bad boss. 
or how to deal with bad bosses while still trying to be a good boss. And I basically tell folks is that however tough the world is, each of us with a little bit of luck and a little bit of help can basically create our own futures, which is one of the reasons why eventually, you know, the tagline or the thing for the book was how to grow yourself, your company and your team. But I also have this emphasis on growth. And my belief is as people grow, companies grow, cultures grow and societies grow. That's, I think that's a really great place to, to end it today, unfortunately. It's been really fantastic having you on the show, Richard. Where can people find out more about you and your work and connect with you? Sure. So on Twitter, I'm at Rashad, which is at R-I-S-H-A-D. If you Google me, you basically have a website, which is RashadTobaccoWala.com. And ideally, uh, if you would like to buy my book, it's available already for pre-order. Uh, it will be available in the United States at the end of January and uh, in other parts at the end of January in Europe in the third week of February. And all you have to basically do is if you use Amazon, just type in R-I-S-H-A-D, which is my first name, or in Google, just say Rishad Book and you'll see where that is. That's, that's amazing SEO right there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rishad. See, so even though I talk about soul, I understand the math. <laughs> this is what happens when you work 25 years in digital and have an advanced math degree. Well, Rashad, thank you once again for spending time with us here today. Um, I really appreciate it and wish you all the very best with the book. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.